Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Sarah Tate. An absolute ad industry titan, Sarah is former CEO of TBWA London, was voted best leader in marketing by Women in Marketing Awards, and has made famous ads for the likes of Coca-Cola, British Airways and Adidas. Readily admitting to getting as much wrong as she does right, Sarah has, along with Anna Voigt, penned The Rebuilders, going from setback to comeback in business and beyond a guide to building resilience and turning obstacles into opportunities. Sarah says nothing moves us forwards faster than a setback. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've listened for ages, so it's a real pleasure to be on. Hey, we're not going to edit that bit out. Uh, So seven quick fires, Sarah. New York or London? Oh, I'm going to say New York because I really miss it at the minute. I really want to go. Poirot or Miss Marple? Oh my God, all of them and all of the other ones. (laughs) Like I'm addicted to that kind of thing, totally. Sherlock Holmes as well. Okay. Uh, David Bowie or Sam Fender? Oh God, this is so hard. I'm going to have to say Sam Fender because I love him and I hope he's well and I'm married to a Geordie. So yeah, and I saw him recently in Finsbury Park. Sam Fender, that is not my husband. (laughs) Uh, Four more, half full or half empty? Neither refillable. The cup's refillable. Right, this is the one I thought might be unfair, but Andy Nairn or Rob Schwartz? Oh, 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 I, I pass. <laughs> <laughs> Neither. <laughs> oh no, both, so, both. <laughs> sci-fi or historical fiction? I mean both, but I'd say sci-fi because that's probably my fave. Cool. And then last one, realism or optimism? Both. You have to have both or you'll lose your, you'll lose your mind. Well, I mean, aside from the fact you answered both to pretty much every one. That was I a know, I know. <laughs> Life is just one big paradox, yeah. Amazing. Well, uh, Sarah, listen, thank you so much for joining us. Really, really happy to have you on. We like to, on Call to Action, as, as it sounds like you'll be aware of, we like to celebrate the routes that guests have taken in their career to get to where they are now. So can you start by telling us about your first ever job and then how that led to your first proper advertising gig? So, I mean, my actual first ever job was working in a carvery when I was 14. And then I worked in a tea bag factory. But apart from those, my first like proper job that where I lived in London and it paid my rent was as um, an assistant producer for an events company. They organize conferences and things. And it was based at the top of a residential high rise building in Totteridge and Whetstone. And I was probably the only person that used to commute out of London on the bus. <laughs> and I I started it because I was just like, I'm just going to start working, which I think is a really good thing to do. And then I did that for a bit. And then I saw another job in this, doing the same kind of thing, but in Soho. So I then I moved to that one. And then I just met someone at a house party who worked in advertising. 
And so I applied to a grad scheme um, when I was about like older than other people. I was probably like 22 or I don't know, 23. Um, and I got in that way. So I had, a, I had a good couple of jobs beforehand, which were very helpful because I just learned like how to be in an office, how to use a computer, what the internet was, how to talk to clients, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I did some other kind of you know, random stuff before I got into advertising. So it was it was quite by by luck then. So advertising wasn't something that you you knew you wanted to get into. I was always interested in it because I'm a child of the eighties and I could sing you many jingles. Um but I wasn't holding out for the perfect job. I was in London, I had a room in a six person house. I needed to pay my rent. And so I just kind of got started and, and I I think when I you know, I was interested in media and, you know, events, advertising, that kind of world. And so I just started in something. And then I think by the time I applied to a grad program in the days when they had them, because I had a couple of years under my belt, I think I probably did all right in the interviews because I knew how to sort of put my shirt on correctly and stuff. Um, but I started as an account person. No, that's not true. I applied for a job as an account person. I was like, I'll take any old job. And then they offered me a job as a strategist and they were like, would you consider a job as a strategist? I was like, yeah, whatever, fine. Just just give me a job. Um, so yeah, I just started and and then that's how I started out in strategy at, at AMV. So I was interested, I, you know, I needed to start working before I really understood like what jobs were out there and what kind of thing might appeal to me, basically. Yeah. Well, I've heard you describe yourself as a nosy ninny. Um, and yes. I, and, I, and I wonder whether being a nosy ninny is probably it's probably a better place to be in advertising, certainly in a strategy role, than a carvery or tea bag factory or an events company. I mean, yes, I am. You know, you could say I'm endlessly curious, but I'm just dead nosy. Um, the the Geordie word for it is nebbing. Like I'm a big nebber. Like I'm always looking in windows and stuff. I'm, I'm yeah, I'm really interested in people, and I how love often are you variety. looking in windows? I mean, all the time. My husband, will look, my husband's like, stop looking in that person's window. I'm like, well, they shouldn't live in London and leave the curtains open then so yeah I'm really I like variety and I'm very curious about people and I think as I've got older I've realized that's probably um, a trait of of being dyslexic I think like I like a lot of variety and if I don't have it I get quite bored Um, so strategy was perfect for me and so and did it feel good from the off or was it very much learning on the job because as you said you you were you know keen to accept any role to a point I'm sure within within agency world it's a great question. My instinct is to go, yeah, I loved it. But actually, I remember I found it quite hard. I was um, working on Sainsbury's and I was a strategist. And as a junior strategist, there's not much you can do. I mean, if you're a junior account person, there's lots of like jobs to be done that you can just, you know, do the deck or do some photocopying and you can start somewhere. And as a junior strategist, I sort of struggled to get traction a bit. And I worked for a wonderful woman called Bridget Angier, who uh, now runs uh, Craig and Bridget with Craig Maudsley. And and I remember going home and being a bit sort of sad one day because I was just like, I just don't really feel... I remember feeling like the account was this massive landscape and I was just lost in the map. And I didn't really know where to go or what to do or how to kind of make myself useful. And I think it can be a little bit harder as a strategist at the beginning because there's not so many like easy things you can pick up and do. And then eventually someone will point you towards read all this research and, you know, or go to these research groups. That's sort of how you get start used to get started in the old days. And then I, you know, it would be then um, deal with the value briefs. 
you know, so I'd write sort of value. I'd write propositions for like two for one salmon and stuff. So, you know, there's little projects you can pick off, but I do remember finding it tricky at the beginning. I just didn't know where to place myself or what I should be doing. And there was a lot to get my head around. It's one of those things that to me, anyhow, don't sit as comfortably uh, being a junior or at least lacking experience in a role as say, as you said, the account management side of things, because there are, I can, you can relatively easily go up the gears quite comfortably. Whereas with strategy work, it's it's all or nothing in many respects. I think there's, I think there's less smaller, tangible tasks you can get your teeth into often. Um, I mean, I was very lucky in that I think there were entry level strategy jobs in those days for people who knew nothing about advertising, which was me. Um, and, um, and they were very patient with me and, you know, and I could, I did kind of learn on the job, but I also meet people who are in account management roles and they sort of want to be into in strategy or maybe they're starting out and they want to go into strategy. And I'm just like, just do account management for a couple of years because you'll get, it doesn't, you can transition later. I mean, Tom Roach, who we all know is an incredible brain. He was an account man originally. So, you know, just getting in and understanding what an accountant is and what a client is. I mean, I was terrified in client meetings, for example. Um, and I remember I had this brief to do, oh God, it's all burned in my memory. I had a brief to do on the launch of Sainsbury's clothing range too. And I, I had a really thoughtful brief, but when we went to present it to the client, I hadn't prepared how I was going to present and I kind of choked and I, and I was, what I was saying wasn't very clear. And Bridget took me aside afterwards and said, okay, you know, that's great. But next time, like have a think before you go in, like how you're going to share your work. And I was like, oh yeah, okay. Like it just hadn't occurred to me. Why would it have done? And actually you can pick up all that stuff in account management. And then by the, if you want to transition into strategy, by the time you transition in, you've got all that stuff down and that stuff will really help you kind of speed ahead and be a great strategist. You've got all the basics down. Yeah, it's quite consistent, actually. And, and we've done, so, so you'll be our 101st guest. And I, there's, there's huge consistencies there with your point about Tom. And I'm sure the same is true with just thinking of other great strategists we've had on. So Sarah Benson, I'm pretty sure it's the same path. And I think Richard Huntington, too, started in account management. And I think both uh, said to varying degrees they were terrible at account management. But I don't think it's... Um, there's, I mean, we'll definitely come onto this in your book, but there's definitely value in being terrible at something because that's how you learn. And actually, there's probably a lot more that people perhaps retrospectively don't appreciate about a path they might have taken in agency land where they've, I don't know, maybe unfairly judged themselves to be a poor performer, but actually they've taken huge value from it at the same time. Yes. And also, I think I think anyone starting out any job is a poor performer. I mean, I remember... My boss, when I was in event management, asked me to phone a courier, right? I'd never phone a courier. <laughs> so the courier came and I gave him two Betamax tapes. That was it. Like just two tapes in his hand, right? And uh, and afterwards she was like, okay, so what's really good to do is to put them in an envelope and write an address on. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, next time I'll do that. But like, I didn't know. I mean, so like, I think it's easy to be like, oh, we were all really terrible at something. But you've got to learn, right? You've just got to learn how to hold yourself, how to communicate, how to deal with people who are maybe how to go in a room and present to someone who's 20 years older than you, you know, it's like a senior client. And you can learn that stuff. It doesn't matter what your the, the title is over you. You can, you can learn that stuff in, in all sorts of roles. Well, it sounds like you working with Bridget was obviously, um, was obviously fantastic. She sounds great. 
so patient, so patient with me. <laughs> <laughs> Would you retrospectively look at those uh, times with the courier and, and, and your deck in your presentation? And would you regard those as, as setbacks of sorts? I certainly, they were all little sort of mini mega cringes, you know, like, oh God, that was, you know, and I, you, you do feel, I probably went home after that meeting with Bridget and I probably felt pretty rubbish and a bit silly and a bit like nervous going to work the next day. And I think that's kind of, kind of normal, but my God, I've always remembered it. And I always, I now I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a great presenter and I prepare really well. So I think those, I think it's about learning to sort of take feedback and accept that you're not going to be great at everything first time and do listen and do be mindful, but don't sort of feel it's kind of a terminal judgment on how you, you know, how you're going to end up being. And how long were you in that role for? I was there for about two and a half years and I left with some strategic knowledge and having met my husband, hilariously. Um, and then I went to BBH, you know, and when you're like 21 or whatever, however old I was, you're like two and a half years is a lifetime. So I left and went to BBH and then I was there for five years. And then at what point, I'm, I'm, I'm intentionally going to jump a few years here because I'm mindful like, that there's a lot of um, meaty stuff to tuck into regarding the book. But at what point did you decide to write a book about dealing with setbacks and, and, and resilience? In the first lockdown in 2020. Yeah. So at a point where everything was kind of, you know, all upended, basically, um, that Anna and I decided at that point. And was it, obviously it was triggered by the pandemic, but was it also then triggered by the experiences in Adland or was it a perhaps even part of a, a you know, a mechanism to, to cope during the pandemic? In very smart of you. It was sort of all of those things in a way. Um, it was triggered by um, we had a professional interest in rebuilding because we had gone into TVWA to do a turnaround. So we sort of had a sort of professional interest in how you take something and you rebuild it. And being a planner and an ex-planner, as I would consider myself, um, we were interested in the sort of people dynamics of that, you know, not not just the operational or financial dynamics, but you know, I've, I've have a belief that all most business problems are people problems, you know, or behavior change problems in some way. So we were fascinated by that side of it. Um, and then I think what happened was when the pandemic came, we were also dealing with, you know, like everyone stuff happening and homeschooling and, and running the business at the same time. And our, we actually started the podcast first. I really think as a way of, being able to sit in our bedrooms late at night and talk about something on the phone, not in the same bedroom. That'd be weird because it was a lockdown um, and talk about something else. Right. And so we hatched this idea for this podcast and we wanted to, we decided that we wanted to talk about people who'd over just people who'd overcome things. We'd, we'd had a great two years at TBWA and, and some really like exceptional results. And then we were going into this, you're like, oh, things aren't always on the up forever, right? Because now there's a global pandemic. And so we're in another cycle of like, how do we get through this? And we just wanted to talk to some people who've gone through a lot of stuff because that's interesting. It's a form of research in a way, I guess. And then as we went through it, we became more interested in it. And then we decided to write the book. And, and I think our interest was also slightly personal because we, like everyone, had been through some stuff and the focus for us became the fact that 
there's no such thing as like personal skills and professional skills or personal rebuilds and professional rebuilds like the experiences and tools um that you accrue along the way are relevant to both and we both really felt that i think particularly during the pandemic when our personal and professional selves were like crushed into one and everyone was sort of suddenly you didn't have the time to be one thing at work and one thing at home you barely had the time to be one thing um and so that was how we we came up with the idea of writing a book which looked at setbacks personally and professionally and kind of looked at the skills which can um and learnings that can span both and how did did you spot many consistencies during the um so say the podcast and the interviews and the discussions you were having because i'm i'm always mindful how easy it is to without any kind of intent take someone who might be an exception and put them on a stage and teach rules <laughs> or or look into funny enough i was talking to joe glover recently who runs the brilliant marketing meetup and he was talking about fielding the question of how do you build a great community and concluded that actually you can't replicate what he's done so actually the way you can answer that question is really just to give an example of how it happened in his life and in in the context of the marketing meetup and i suppose the same is probably true with all of the interviews and the great stuff you've got in your book and yet on the flip side contrary to everything i've just said there are loads of consistencies about tackling comebacks and that the challenges that people face that you find so how, how easy was it to take the bits that are consistent away from the context that's so unique yeah I mean it's a great question I mean the it's not a the book is not a prescription it's not like do these 10 things and you will be on your feet it's more a series of ways of thinking um so I have spent like the last couple of years um I'm doing a master's in executive coaching and it's a bit based on coaching principles which is you know we lightly offer some approaches some ways of thinking about things and the tools in there are really kind of thinking tools to allow you to think about your own situation in different ways so rather than saying do these 10 things and you'll get here um so you know coaching doesn't give you the answers it offers ways of framing things and thinking about things and and people may find that useful or that might not work for them so in that sense it's kind of just offering up some ways of looking and seeing um and then how we then got to those was we did see a quite a lot of themes in in the people that we that we spoke to the predominant one being that our kind of our, our theory was borne out that when you look at the personal skills or the personal mindsets that you know the things that are within our control and sit within us that there are a lot of commonalities between the personal and the professional you know there's more uh, there's more commonalities between the loss of a business and the loss of a loved one, for example, than we would think in terms of how we respond to it as individuals and as human beings. Or the the failure to uh, secure a job opportunity and the breakdown of a relationship, you know, how we process those things and how we might respond to those things. So there were quite a lot of themes that came out we spoke to like 10 people initially and then we went and spoke to about another 40 and then we went and and read sort of we desk researched around those things to kind of look at what research there was out there um and I think we've got like 15 models in the book and again some of them will resonate with people some of them won't some of the case studies will resonate with people some of them won't so it's very much a kind of a pick up and and take what works for you as opposed to here's a guaranteed prescription for success 
Yeah, you talked about the commonalities between personal and professional, I suppose, experiences there. And I suppose that was only accentuated and, and I suppose those lines were blurred even more during the pandemic itself, wasn't it? Because whether we wanted to or not, work kind of invaded home. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because one of the people that we I interviewed for the book um, was, there was two people, for example, each chapter has two different people in and normally from quite different different backgrounds. And, you know, one of the big themes that came out during the pandemic was dealing with loss and not just necessarily loss of a loved one, but often loss of plans. So people plan to get married and then maybe they were planning to have children or, you know, people were in the middle of IVF and then they weren't able to continue to do IVF or they had a dream for where their career was going to go next year. And then suddenly that that, that can't be fulfilled. Maybe they're going to move house. Maybe they're unwell. Maybe they lost their job. So the theme of loss was something that came up a lot, for example. Um, and I talked to someone in the NHS, this guy called Steve Andrews, who's incredible. And I also talked to two women who <clears throat> work in the funeral and, and death industry. So one of them is a funeral director and one of them is a, uh, a death doula, which is a bit like palliative care. Um, and she specializes in ch- children with terminal illnesses and working with their families. And, and with her, it was really interesting because I was I wanted to understand how grief and loss like manifest and how we can come back from them. And I thought she was going to say to me, I had this this sort of theory that maybe we can suffer grief around other things. And I thought she was going to be like, you know, look, I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with children who are dying and their families don't don't try and equate it with other stuff. But she didn't say that at all. She actually really agreed with it. And she was she she was really like clearly said, like grief doesn't just belong to death. It does belong to other things Like we grieve other things. I mean, I'm just looking at this quote from her. She's like, we grieve friendships. We can grieve people that would have been job opportunities. She said COVID-19 has been huge learning in terms of all the things that we can grieve and how we deal with that grief. So, uh, you know, she's like, there are lots of practices along the way. And if we can find a better way to deal with our grief, then when it hits us really hard, we'll be better prepared. So she was almost sort of saying, you know, if we experience these small griefs in our life, the loss of a job, the breakdown of a relationship, maybe a friend moves away. And actually, they sort of prepare us for the big griefs, um, you know, learning how to deal with those things. Now, that's quite an intense one, but that's something that particularly came up during COVID. And I think there are things that we can learn from going through setbacks, small setbacks in our life that, if nothing else, equip us for when we come across the bigger ones. Did you discover anything about going through grief or any, I suppose, shape of of challenge or setback, how it differs, whether it's an individual or a group? Because, of course, there were lots of benefits, if I can use that word, that's probably not the right word, um, from the pandemic where people did almost brought people together in a in a you know unfortunate way but in a very positive way at the same time yeah I mean we definitely find and I think Bruce Daisley covers this in his book Fortitude that being part of a group or a community is a key is really key to help you overcome something so for example uh the loss of a loved one you know coming together at a funeral and witnessing grief in other people and kind of you know celebrating life and celebrating sad about the loss together helps people process but also having a support community around you really helps you move through something um and and companies can experience grief for example say if a company has a big chain you know i mean look at twitter right 
at the minute this week. So um, there will be within that within that you know husk of whatever is left there. Those people will be experiencing some huge form of collective loss, and they will also, if that you know, if they if there are people within there who feel able to do so and they're allowed to do so, they will be able to process that together. So the community aspect of getting through things is really, really important. Um, and I think that was what was difficult during COVID because we were sort of cut off from people. We couldn't, we weren't really seeing people in our daily life. So being around people um, and leaning on them for support and being able to share with them is massively important for helping us go through things and, and building that community. And and if you can, not need, not always doing it in isolation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And actually, that Twitter reference is very apt. I, 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 can, <laughs> I, I was saying to Nick, Nick Charles the other day that uh, you know, whether ignoring the morals for a second, which I know we shouldn't, I, I would probably feel some form of grief were I to just shut it down and close it off because it represents such a, uh, a supportive community to me. And I've, I know many people only via Twitter. So the idea of turning that off is is quite terrifying regardless of the context of the situation it's interesting because i we only know each other through twitter right and i made quite a lot of new contacts i would say like people that i have an only twitter-based relationship with during the pandemic i think because it was something outside of my walls and it was really interesting how on the day last friday when all the job um, losses were happening at twitter ex-twitter employees went on twitter with the hashtag loved where I, where you work and they created the hashtag um sort of spontaneously or or in some lightly organized fashion where they all spoke about how much they had enjoyed and they shared their times there. And I thought, gosh, this is a sort of irony or not in doing this on the Twitter platform. But that's a great example of they were processing together, right? They wanted to share with each other virtually and with the world, you know, this was an important place for me and I loved it and this is what I loved about it. And there's huge value in doing that as a form of processing, sort of celebrating what they had and beginning to process collectively sort of their loss. I want to dig into a couple of chapters of the book and I plan to do this probably in a more linear way than uh, than has proved because I'm kind of aware that I'm dotting about a bit. But in terms of where we start in the book and reframing setbacks, you talk about the now it's all about the now how how firstly what does that mean i suppose but also how do you ensure that you do focus on the now because things can be so can become so overwhelming in your own mind and actually focus is probably a big part of how you can overcome setbacks yeah i mean it is it i mean all these things sound really easy to do right <laughs> they're really difficult in practice um I, I always think of that it's a sort of apocryphal mark twain quote where he goes i spent my life my whole life worrying about many things almost all of which never happened you know um and the more that there is going on around us um the 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 more helpful it can be to focus on right now. Because if you start thinking about what's happened before, it can be endless. If you start thinking about what might happen in future, it can be endless. So focusing on the now is is really helpful. Um, We have a really, we have a tool in the book called SOAR, which is sort of based on some bits of research we looked at and some some people that we spoke to. And it's S-O-A-R. So S is like setting short-term goals. So setting goals and tasks that you can get on with straight away. So preparing for a good meeting or what to make for dinner. So just something where you are focusing your mind on something now, but also you can kind of tick it off your list. So I was trying to do something before I spoke to you and I, I, I don't have a great concentration span and I just set myself 35 minute timer. 
<laughs> like I'm just going to do this one thing for 35 minutes, um, uh, which takes on to the next one, which is one task at a time. So con- a lot of multitasking can sort of send you into a bit of a frenzy. And you're, as soon as you start to split your attention too many ways, you you can feel less fulfilled about what you're doing and also it becomes hard to sequence so if you can if you can try and sequence it can reduce the sort of feeling of overwhelm the the a in sort is is accepting so and this is something that anna feels really strongly about which is there is research to say that we tend to be really harsh about decisions that we made in the past because we tend to forget the context that we made them in so you look back and you go I should have done x I should have done y but the truth of it is you often make the best decision you can at the time in that context with the available information so often so you know she sort of says try and accept what you're seeing and feeling and, and understand it in the context of, of of right now rather than spend lots of time regretting decisions because oh I would have made that differently today um so you know just accepting what is and take a decision and move on um and I'm actually really bad at that I I'm not great at taking decisions because I sort of want it to be a hundred percent decision like I know everything but sometimes just accept the context and don't look back over your shoulder and beat yourself up about you would have done something differently before because we do tend to forget the context in which we made a decision. And then the last one is sort of respond, don't react. So it's that whole thing of trying to create a little bit of space between the events around us and the stimulus around us and then our immediate um, reaction to them, like try and take a beat, take a breath so you can kind of respond, decide how you want to respond. The classic thing I always think about is when I was, MD I just used to I was always in my inbox and there's always like small fires coming and you're always kind of fighting them and and my boss at the time was telling me this this parable is it parable I don't know about like two policemen see a fight in the street walk over to it the young policeman rushes over to break up the fight the older policeman walks over very slowly and by the time he's there the fight has broken up um and it's this thing of like if you res- if you react really quickly, you might not actually make it any better. If you just wait and take a breath, you might find it resolves itself. Um, or you can then take a more measured response. And, and you often find that with your inbox. You know, if you leave something and come back 15 minutes later, it's sort of died down and and, um, and resolved itself. So that's just, you know, sort of saw those four things as quite a good way of trying to focus on what's happening now. Um, and... Uh, Stop yourself getting too overwhelmed. We interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Giles Edwards, on 01189 952 007. Only recently, some pod listening companies did just that, calling for guidance on direct mail and customer research. But we're not asking you to do that. Nope. Anyway, back to the show. Yeah, it is now. Hang on, hold on. There's, a, there's, um, there I think go. it's chapter three. Ignore the uncontrollable. Is that, is that, is that kind of linked to the accepting past decisions and that you made the right? Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. It is very much. Um, uh, and Stephen Covey talks about it a lot. It's kind of really sort of mapping out what can you know what's within your sphere of control, what's within your sphere of influence, and also naming what sits outside it. 
and just kind of putting that on the back burner. I mean, we talked to this amazing woman who was, of course, sorry, it's a really heavy chat today. I didn't mean it to be so heavy. Um, <laughs> we talked to this woman who's a human rights activist, um, but she, she's an amazing woman called Mandy Sangera who extracts people from uh, refugees from war scenarios. And she was had been getting people out of Afghanistan. And we were just like, Anna actually interviewed her. And they're like, I mean, if you hear her talk about what she does, it basically makes you want to have just a breakdown immediately because it's so stressful because there's so many variables, so many things that can go wrong that are totally without outside her control. And so she said that the way she just maintains her mental health is she only focuses on the things that she can do, which are pretty limited. Now, every stage of extracting someone, there's like millions of things that can go wrong. So she just focuses on what she can do and she just tries to put, you know, she's very clear about the other stuff and like what will be what will be. Um, and then she also has this great thing that she does. She talks about a mental inbox where she just has so much stuff in her mind that she said she only downloads a little bit at a time from her mental inbox. She just downloads one thing and then she'll think about it and then she'll deal with that and then she'll download something else. And I just thought it's such a great like sort of visual metaphor in a way to think like, how much can I download at this point in time? And, you know, and, and her other point of like, what is within her control and, and not? I feel both metaphorically and physically that I have too many tabs open at any one time. So on my brain and on my Mac. <laughs> so I think I could learn something there. Well, metaphors are really, ha- I mean, me- I don't know if metaphors, if it's the right term, as a classic dyslexic, I'm like mi- mixing my metaphors. Um, but a, a metaphor, like that's called a metaphor, it can be really helpful in coaching because if you identify that, then you can like go through and go, okay, what tabs do I have open in my mind? And which of those am I actively going to close? You can almost imagine yourself clicking on it and closing it you know, like Mandy's downloading it from the inbox. So sometimes working with a metaphor like that, if that works for you, can be really helpful to choose which ones you want to close down. Yeah. Well, I, I remember a few years ago so when I was, um, I don't know, in the middle of a big, some form of worrying, no doubt, knowing me, someone said to me, if you, and again, this is nodding back to section one of the book, is if you can control it, great, what you're doing worrying, go and control it. And if you can't control it, well, you can't control it. So what are you worrying about? And it was like, yes. it was almost one of those trick of the mind things where I immediately, I felt relieved, but I also felt quite angry because it was so easy to reframe it. But I can yeah. see why that's valuable. Yeah. How much of this do you think, and it might be one of those retrospective things, is is an outline for how you manage to turn around the fortunes of, of TBWA London? Because it strikes me that there's, there's, I mean, of course, and I don't want to trivialise the people you've interviewed, certainly not the last lady you mentioned or, or, or the lady who works with uh, terminally ill children, of course, but are the same processes and the same learnings how you could manage in a leadership role of a big organisation where there are, of course, so many moving parts? Yeah, I mean, I would say there is a lot of crossover. I mean, in part because there's obviously things you do to turn around a company. There's operational things, there's financial things. You know, there's there's a lot of practical things that you do. But the bit which is, I think, most challenging because it's kind of there's less of a playbook for it and it's endlessly fascinating and complicated is the, is the people and cultural aspect of it, not least how you manage yourself. So, you know, we, we talk in the book about things like flexibility and, you know, just take me as a CEO, for example. I mean, you go in and you think, you know, everything, right. And then after six months, you're like, I've used all my tricks and now 
now what, you know? And then COVID comes or something else comes and you're like, I've never dealt with this before. So quite quickly, you have to find some new approaches. We talk in the book about flexibility and about the fact that how sometimes you need to accept that the path you're on isn't right or the decision you made it wasn't that it was wrong, but you now need to make a different one and holding on really, really tight to something that is no longer the right plan isn't isn't necessarily good. You know, a lot of people think that showing flexibility is a sign of weakness or admitting that you've that there's a different way to do this is a, is a sign of weakness. But actually, it's not. It's sometimes it's very required. Um, and so there's lots of things, I think, in the book, which were things that I had to learn as a leader um, and also that I had to learn about managing a, a team and a group of people and how how people respond to uncertainty when you're you know going through a rebuild, for example. So I also took a lot about uncertainty and how a group of people or a business or a leader, how you keep moving through uncertainty. And I think when we wrote it in 2021, like we had no idea that that would become so prevalent because most leaders in most businesses right now do not have a playbook. Like we just, you know, in America, I was just listening to the sort of stats the other day, and obviously they've got the the Fed are putting um, interest rates up. They're, they, they're going to keep going up and up. And yet they've got like really low unemployment levels. And, and the, like the statistics in the economy just don't make sense. And, you know, the same we're seeing here, you know, we've got, um, it's basically it's, it's stagflation, which is really rare. We've got rising prices and a declining growth rate. And you're like, but that that's, that's very, very rare to find those economic indicators in that, in that sitting in that way. And so we're all facing into deep uncertainty without a kind of roadmap for how we how we go forwards and a lot of learning to overcome setbacks is that it's going right okay I don't know where I am we don't know where we are what, what are we going to do how are we going to keep going yeah I, I really liked there's there's something you said I think it was in your Firestarters interview where you talk about saying I don't know or I don't know let's go and figure this out and actually it takes so much confidence to say that and of course in the face of uncertainty that's probably even more true and valid the significance of being able to take that stance Yes. Yeah. It, it, it's like the biggest learning for me as a leader. And it's something I talk about a lot. And when I, if I coach leaders, I, I talk to them about it and it, it's very difficult to do to, 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 to move from the requirement to the, the feeling that you need to assert what you know, um, and actually be able to say, I don't know. Let's, let, let's explore this. And it, it's why, um, we, we talk in the book about why curiosity will get you further than knowledge. Yeah, I was about to quote you on that. You know, I think if you, if one, if a leader or anyone is very concerned around looking like they know everything, you end up focusing so much energy on managing people's perception of you and managing the fact that you look like you know what you're doing. I mean, let's say Trump or whoever it might be. I'm sure we can all think of people as opposed to genuinely seeking solutions for the problems that lay in, in front. So, yeah, I mean, we, we, we there's, there's lots of examples of it, but I think the Buddhists have a, a really good term for it because they've got all the good terms for everything, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, you know, it's like they it's really so thought greedy. this through. It's called the beginner's mind, and which is the idea that um, approach things not as an expert, not thinking, I know this, but actually approach it thinking, 
what don't I know about this and what can I learn? So they say, you know, if you're, if your mind is empty, then you're open to everything. So in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. And in the expert's mind, there are a few. And I just think, you know, if anyone took one thing away from coaching or from this conversation, it's the ability to be able to just say, I don't know, let's explore what the solution could be. I, I would find people coming to me all the time as CEO with stuff. Increasingly, I was just like, I don't know. I mean, you know, we had a whole like programmatic division. I'd be like, my understanding of programmatic is top line at best. Um, and people, and I had to learn to say, you know, I don't know, what do you think? What do you think we should do? Or if neither of us know, let, let's explore. What what, sta- what steps do we need to go through to understand what we might need to do? Yeah, it's wonderful. Absolutely love that. Curiosity will get you further than knowledge. And I suppose from a, from a leader's mindset, that's probably so significant and vital. And it, it kind of manifests itself in loads of different ways. And we always um, talk about, and funny enough, in Mark Ritson's mini MBA classes, when he talks about that, the significance of market orientation, it is literally that mindset of, I don't know, but we're going to find out. And and there's something so, it, it can either sound really trivial or it can sound really powerful. And of course, it should only sound the latter, really, because it's it's always the right approach. But it's, I suppose, for various reasons, maybe it's people's perceptions of you. People feel under pressure to have an answer. Yeah, and I think it's difficult as a leader as well because you also want to give your team certainty. So this isn't about running. About, this isn't about yeah running about like headless chicken going. I don't know anything. Oh God, we're all doomed. You know, um, it is about saying, accepting this is a new scenario. Let's create a plan. You know, for how we might understand the variables that we need to understand to help us deal with this scenario. So you can still be in control. You can still give people confidence. You can still create a, uh, a stable, secure feeling plan, but that one that still allows you to go out and find new information and ask lots of questions and seek innovation and think creatively, all those kind of things. Did you go to Festival of Marketing recently, Sarah? I didn't, no, I didn't. There was a great slide shared by Sam Conniff, who, who talks a lot about well, studies uncertainty as well. And I've kept it on my phone. Stats from this you know, significant piece of research they did was that the, the average human has between 40 and 60,000 thoughts a day. No, 90% are the same as yesterday. 80% of them are negative or, or worries. Of those, only 2% come true. But of that 2%, 95% of that 2%, so almost all of them, lead to growth in some uh, in some in some way and yet we're also crippled by uncertainty yeah and, and I think that I would really agree with Sam that you know although it sounds like quite a heavy chat that we've had the great thing about setbacks is they also create space for growth you know in order to move forwards you often need a setback of some kind because otherwise you just stay in like a stasis position and you know being unsure being uncertain doing something for the first time or something failing is the way that we move forwards because it creates space for something else. And, you know, I always, that's why in your Sam Fender, David Barry question, I was like, oh, I don't know, because I also use David Barry and Grayson Perry a lot as an example of the amazing stuff that can happen when you don't know. So, um, you know, David Barry all the time would talk about sort of going off into the unknown. And if something was working really well, like he had a character like Ziggy Stardust, he'd be like, I'm going to kill that character and I'm going to start again with a thin white jute because 
it, you've got to kill something off or something has to fail in order for you to move forward. There was a great Grayson Perry interview in 2020 where he sort of talked about going that he was addicted to periods of doubt and low confidence because he says if you if you um if you're sure that everything you're going to do is going to be good what's the point he said i see i see that um he said when he has this uh, doubt and low confidence he sees it as a sign that he's teetering on the edge of something new and i think the only people who really uh learn to love that feeling are artists because that is how they make the breakthroughs to the next stage. And I think for us being in a creative industry, learning not to avoid the periods of uncertainty and doubt, but actually, you know, Sam's point to listen and tune into it and like get a little bit comfortable with it is where the new stuff comes from. So yeah, I couldn't agree with Sam more. That is where the growth happens. Before we go on to our listener questions, can you just update us on what you're doing now? Because it sounds like you should really, well, Selfishly, I want you to, to have both feet still in still in Adelaide, <laughs> um, but you're only kind of waggling a few toes in it, as I understand. Yeah, so I I've sort of gone back to strategy in a way, but um, I have refocused on my kind of deep interest in people. But I do it in in terms of a sort of cultural context within businesses. So I either work one on one with leaders uh, as a coach, or I or I work with teams, or I do work on a whole culture where there's some form of transformation needs to take place or maybe an evolution of of the kind of values and behaviors in the company all the work is connected it's effectively around uh, the the individuals within a company and how critical they are to to the success of that company wonderful well we, we, we'll come on to um links so people can get in touch with you at the end but should we do our listener questions oh god i'm sort of terrified but yes god <laughs> Brilliant. So don't be terrified. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names or Boris, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not... Yes, I know. I'm scared. Um, (laughs) Okay, I'll start with a nicer one. So we've got the lovely James Watley. So James Watley asks, what advice would you give to strategists and planners moving into a leadership position? So there might be some crossover with where we've just been, but... Relax. Just relax. A lot of strategists and a lot of people moving into those roles say, I don't think I can do it. And I would, you know, if you want to be really plannery about it, list out all of the skills that you think you're going to need in the new role, list out all of the skills that you have currently. And I think you'll find that 98% of them map across. So people worry about things like, I don't know how to read a PL. And I'm like, you've been reading Excel sheets for years. It's just another Excel sheet. Um, I think the difference is, do explore leadership. Um, the, you know, being a planner is often about having a real 360 view on things and providing information. But the leader part of agency leadership is the thing that I found most different. You need to be able to do all of that and give clear direction and provide a sense of security and vision for people. And you need to take decisions on your shoulders. And for me, that's that's the biggest thing. So explore, don't worry too much and really explore what your type of leadership looks like and be aware that leadership is a different thing to management. And is there, are there varying types of, of leaders, do you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone is individual. I think there are there is research that um, can explore, that does explore the, uh, I don't know, just Google, there's loads out there, the 
the effective traits of leaders today, which has been a little bit different than in the past. They talk about host leadership rather than hero leadership. You know, it's not so command and control. It changes all the time. You know, there's things that you can do to learn how to lead through uncertainty, etc. But we are all different as leaders. Like we are, we all have our, it's as individual as our fingerprint. So learning what a good leader looks like, but then also learning how you how you look and show up as a leader is really important. Brilliant. That echoes, um, I remember years ago, I did a, it was an IPA leadership training course. I hope I kept the receipts. I don't, I don't think it worked on me, but the, but the point. I mean, you the, now have an agency, so you're either doing something no, 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 right. No, no, kind, Sarah, but just scrap whatever you were going to say. But, the, but, the, but the, uh, the point there is, and I genuinely say this as someone who's not very good at managing people, and everyone knows that to be true. One of the, one of the standout points I do remember was exactly what you've just said, so that's really reassuring, which was there isn't like a mould or a thing to fit into. And, and if anything, you talked about that kind of uniqueness. They say the same thing. If anything, it, it, you almost need to become an exaggerated version of the person you already are. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, you you sort of understand your strengths and understand your more challenge areas and, and you will grow in that mold. You know, there's no point trying to, they say, if you try and strengthen a weakness, you weaken a strength. You know, you will be who you will be. But that doesn't mean you should just crash on in like a bull in a china shop. I think... I find having a coach, I've had a coach, I've had multiple coaches, but one of my coaches for eight years, I think having someone getting a coach is a really good way of helping you reflect on how you're growing as a leader and the things you need to learn, I think is something you can put time into. And it's worth putting time into. You will learn it on the job, but you might, if you're just learning on the job and you're not taking time to reflect on how you're developing your leadership, there can be a little bit of collateral damage on the way when you look back after three years and like, oh, shit, I wish I hadn't been a bit to like that at the beginning so I think coaches are you know good leadership coaches can really help you learn and reflect on developing your style question two is a, is a little bit fiercer I suppose oh, so God. It, it's, it's from Tom Lewis I love Tom because um, as he demonstrates in this question Tom is rarely on the fence Tom can't even see the fence I think is sometimes. it about money no well no it's it well yeah indirectly I suppose it is he says what have you seen that gives you justified confidence that Adland is not a doomed, toxic place to work that is in a monibund spiral? Who is getting it right? What are they doing differently to everyone else? And what actionable advice would you recommend? Okay, so that's loads of questions in there. So I'm just going to take the politician's approach and answer the first one. I would say turn around and look at the person to the left of you and look at the person to the right of you. And that is the thing that gives me confidence. So I think there's many broken financial models in the industry. I think there's it's really easy to be like, this doesn't work or that doesn't work. And I mean, there's a lot that doesn't work. Um, but I, I do believe that the people, the people in the industry are not that list of stuff. They're not redundant, moribund, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's what gives me confidence. And, and that's the thing that I find endlessly fascinating is the people I do believe that most people are are smart, they're hardworking, they're credible, they're ethical, they're, they care deeply about their work and the people around them. Um, and those people will prevail. And that might be in the, in the agencies that are out there currently. Uh, it, it might be somewhere else in some other model doing something else. But, you know, why I want the industry to succeed is because it employs, you know, thousands upon thousands of incredible people who deserve you know, a healthy, happy, secure working life. And I believe that they can have that. 
Um, and things will need to change as, as they're always changing. But it's the people that sounds really wanky, I know. But but genuinely, you know, if you're feeling a bit down, just look at the people around you and like, do you have faith in them? Yeah, of course you do. Yeah, I, I don't think it sounds wanky at all, to be honest, sir. I think that's actually a really nice, not nice, nice is a horrible word, ironically, but it's it, but it's a really important way of, of framing it. And I think you're absolutely right. And I've always been hugely inspired and very much attracted to the, 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 the collection of really smart, really witty, really creative minds in our industry. And I suppose kind of thinking about it more now, that's one of the biggest reasons I'm so keen to try and have the fight to fix certain things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So the final part of the interview then is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests, starting with what advice would you give to your younger self? Stop caring what everyone else thinks, basically, because like now, you know, it's an endless pursuit of someone's approval who in four years time won't even remember who you were, basically. Just I think it's easier to say when as you get older, Um, but just care much less what people think. I still care too much. Um, but every time I care less, it seems to serve me well. Number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Turning a blind eye. I believe that culture is only as strong as the worst behavior it tolerates. Um, so I, and I'm not even talking about, you know, really serious sort of assault and sexual assault. I just mean like day-to-day bullying, uncivil behavior. And it's probably on my mind this week again, because of the whole Elon Musk sort of thing. I've done it as well. I'm I'm not, you know, my, my docket's not completely clean on that front in terms of I have not always. I look back and I'm like, I wish I'd I wish I'd come down on that harder or faster, you know, the certain things. But yes, you know, don't tolerate and the whole Gavin Williamson thing, right? Don't, you know, I, I, I honestly believe that ugh, most places I've worked would just not tolerate people communicating to other people like that. So, you know, you everyone out there can, you know, can I hope particularly people who in positions of power or positions of privilege, you know, should be able to and should take it upon themselves to say, I'm sorry, don't speak like that to me or don't speak like that to them or, you know, just all of those small things. Like, don't don't put up with it. If you have one iota of, of you know, confidence in your role and power in your job, then, yeah, every day, call it out. Uh, number three is any books that you would recommend. We We heartily recommend The Rebuilders and we will be linking to that on the episode, <laughs> episode listing are there any any other books that you can recommend yeah so i'm recommending two books by female authors i mean there are shockingly few um business books by female authors in 2020 there was more in the in the times like top 50 business bestseller list there were more men called john than there were books by female authors so um if you just you know i'd recommend anyone pick up a book by by a female author i've got one um non-fiction book which is grit by angela duckworth which is some aspects are a little bit dated now it's about sort of you know building resilience um but it's still an absolute bible on this topic so i'd really recommend it and then i just reread i think because i'm missing new york not that i ever used to spend much time there but you know just with not much travel during COVID. What I Loved, which is like 20 years old now, which is by Siri, as you say, Hutzford, I think her surname is, um, Siri Hutzford. What I Loved is a is a story set in New York in like Soho in early uh, early 2000s. And it's, it's, a re- it's a sad book, but it's a beautiful book. It's fiction. We will, we will link very happily to Grit and What I Loved. I, I saw your, um, your LinkedIn post about that. With with a photo with the rebuilders in, I I, I should add, in that um, was it top twenty list that you 
Yeah, and the lady who sent my friend who sent it to me says it was the only book by a female author she could see there, which is insane because there's so many good ones out there. Perfect. Um, and number four, we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow that honour to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you kindly do the honours? So I'm going to bestow it to my husband, not because I'm a total sap, um, but because, you know, he's called Andy McEnany and he's a creative at Adam and Eve. Reason being, I, I think your request was like someone who has been instrumental in your career. And the reason I say him is because I am very, very clear that I would not have been able to do what I've done if I had not had a husband, a partner, a husband who was as supportive as he is. I think it's very challenging for women who do not have either someone at home at all, if they have children, you know, if they're a single parent, um, or someone who is prepared to do 50% or more of all of the emotional and physical labor in the home. So I would not have been able to do the TBWA job when my children were so small if my husband had not picked up more than 50% of you know, childcare and, and house-based things. And I'm really honest about that because... I, I don't want, I want people to understand that it's really challenging to do. I would have struggled with it had I not had someone else there. And I I know that not everyone has that because they might be on their own um, or they just don't have a partner that is prepared to do that. But I think if you, you know, something, there's only 24 hours in a day, right? So I, I hope that um, I, all the men out there support your partners, you know, don't, don't let their jobs take second place. Having someone who is as more happy for your success and you know than you are and who's never jealous who never competes with you and who will always be there to do the pickups and drop-offs when you when you're still at work is critical for women that's a great great dedication i didn't catch his his first name what was his name sorry andy andy so this episode is very proudly dedicated to andy brilliant he sounds ace does he stop you peering through windows too i think you said earlier he tries <laughs> he tries that's a wonderful dedication thank you thank you very much Sarah uh, so as a final call to action we are going to list everything that we've discussed in the last hour crucially the rebuilders which we do encourage you to buy is there any way of getting more Sarah Tate uh, um, yes you can listen to the podcast um, which I, you can link to as well we've got two series there now which is sort of um, myself and Anna interviewing some amazing rebuilders all kinds of brilliant stories in there from people like Chris Halenga who founded Copperfield yeah all um We've got anthropologists, we've got people who've recovered from addiction, all kinds of incredible people. Um, and then if you follow me on LinkedIn, you can normally see what I'm up to or get in touch with me if you'd like to do some work with me or get me to do a talk. I love doing talks. I did one at Meta recently, CIPD conference. So that's often where I share some of my some of my thoughts and learnings from the book. Fantastic. Well, everything there will be linked. Brilliant. Sarah, thank you so much for joining joining us. I've loved this. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. You're a great interviewer, Giles. Uh, and finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the pod. We really value that support. Keep the questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Try 
try, and I try, and I try.